The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly Wheel of Time watch-along podcast. That's right. It is episode four, our final episode discussing season one of Amazon's The Wheel of Time television show. Today, we'll be discussing episodes seven and eight. Just like all of the previous TV episodes, we haven't done our prep, so I don't know what those episodes are called. I, of course, am Tyler, and I am joined, as always, by Greg, my co-host, who is getting to know a lot about Wheel of Time. I feel like you kind of knew what was coming in these episodes. How did it feel to be the expert as we were getting into the end of the season of television? Uh, well, good day, listeners. Uh, yeah, it felt pretty good to be uh, having a little more of my feet underneath me. I will say the the show has been keeping it different enough from the books that I never quite feel comfortable yeah. or that I'm really knowing. Um, but I would actually chalk that up as a positive. Uh, faithful listeners of this podcast will know uh, that we spend the majority of the time with Tyler uh, mansplaining to me kind of what's going on at all times with all things Wheel of Time. And uh, Greg, I don't know if you know this, but mansplaining is a thing where a man explains something. <laughs> Well, I volunteered for this project not knowing it would be three years, but tonight we have a guest who volunteered to do this till death do they part. We have Tyler's wife joining us on the podcast. Steph, how are you? And welcome to the show. Hello. Good to be here. Um, yeah, I am Tyler, Tyler's wife. Um, yeah, when he asked me to to do this, um, I was like, oh man, I haven't, I haven't read those books. I was actually trying to think, Tyler, has it literally been like 10 years? <laughs> that sounds about right. I feel like you started reading those books when we were still engaged rather than married. So maybe yep. you finished them shortly after the wedding. But yeah, we are a decade plus since you have read The Wheel of Time. Yeah, yeah, that hit me today when I was I was thinking about it. So uh, again, also to, to avoid potentially spoiling things because I definitely don't remember what happens in, in which books. Um, yeah, so it's it's kind of for the better that I don't I maybe don't remember some of it, but yeah, super excited to be here, um, particularly Steph, to talk uh, about these episodes. Steph, can you fill us in on how many times you think he's made you watch <laughs> these episodes, and then how many times you would estimate he's watched these episodes? Oh God, excellent questions. So at first, I thought you were going to ask how many times he's read the books because that's like <laughs> in double digits, I think. Um, I thought I mean, you were going to ask how many times she'd listened to this show, which I'm pretty sure the answer is zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm the worst podcast spouse. I have not. I'm not a podcast person in general, so it's it's nothing personal. But um, yeah. Uh, so episodes, I know he's he's definitely been in double digits. I think, right? You watched 
I, I'm probably close to 10. I don't know if I'm close. yet at double okay. digits. You're at least like six or seven, I feel like. Yeah. But um, yeah. And then in terms of me rewatching it, so I've done one watch through and then we just this past week, he had me rewatch these two episodes that we're going to talk about. And I've seen piecemeal a few of the other episodes here and there when I was, you know, puttering about the living room and Tyler was rewatching it for the umpteenth time. So. And just to get the conversation primarily away from how many times I have consumed the Wheel of Time and also how many times I've forced my wife to consume the Wheel of Time. Uh, oh, this, I, isn't, this isn't a counseling session? And how does that make you feel, Tyler, that she won't listen to your podcast? Uh, I suggest we get away from this completely, immediately, and actually start talking about the television show that we are here to discuss. Um, and I think there is nowhere to start other than the first scene of the first of two episodes we watched today, uh, in which a pregnant Aiel woman kills six or seven people from the Westlands while beginning to go into labor. Um, this was one of those scenes that I saw for the first time and went, oh my God, this is why this needed to be a television show. I want to start just by throwing to Greg, who is the one of us who had not seen this until just a few days ago. What was your response to the opening? opener to this episode, which I said at the beginning of this, you're a book reader, you kind of knew what was coming. You did not have any idea this was coming. Uh, I mean, I am a father and I was present for the birth of both my children. And it was pretty much exactly like this. I mean, <laughs> no, no differences. Uh, no, uh, I mean, it was gobsmacking. It was like an all time banger i was like this is unreal uh, and you all me to the bonus feature that explains a little how they did that and um it was kind of just amazing to have them confirm that this is not something that we ever see in the books not just that it wasn't in this first book but that it, that you never see it and really have them set up that that was one of their goals is to kind of get to show some things we hadn't ever seen and that that is very cool um you know, I think at times I've maybe pejoratively uh, said this was trying to be Game of Thrones, but this was far beyond, um, in terms of quality, far beyond anything I think Game of Thrones or any of the other fantasy TV shows has achieved. And I think for me, what makes this so exciting as a scene is that it takes something that I think we've talked about on the in, in the our regular podcast that on the page action is never especially exciting. It takes you a page and a half to have someone swing a sword three times, but on the screen action can be awesome. And so taking some of these scenes that Robert Jordan has intentionally not shown and then showing them super exciting. I want to then throw to our guest because um, I know this about my wife. I don't think the audience does unless you're really creeping on this podcast. Uh, my wife is into uh, combat sports. She does Tai Chi and Kung Fu. And so Steph, if we're talking about a gobsmacking fight, please tell us what made this so amazing from kind of a, a fighting perspective. Because I know from a movie, I'm like, yeah, it moves cool. But like, you know, mm. the real interesting things. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that fight was really awesome. Um, I think what really stuck out to me with it is kind of the, the realism of it. And I'm going to say that knowing like there are tons of people on the Internet who went to the Internet and started like trashing the scene for like, you know, saying that this this massively pregnant woman, um, you know, could not possibly fight. Right. And be that physical. And, you know, anytime there's someone like one person taking on multiple fighters. Right. Like, oh, that's that's so over the top. Right. 
Um, you know, which is funny because it's a criticism you never hear of like John Wick, right? Or those those mm -hmm. kinds of action heroes. So, mm -hmm. so I think to you know to, to having this this woman, but also this this pregnant woman who's going into labor, right, during this fight scene, um, a is really really awesome, really badass. But also, um, I, again, I think choreographed really well and and pretty faithfully. Um, it's it's cool, you know. So the you know this character is using the spear, right? Um, and I think, you know, we don't get to see a lot of spear scenes in a lot of uh, the cinematic world. We often see sword, we see axe, we see other things, but but spear and especially a two-handed spear, um, which is a kind of unusual when uh, she, or like, not sorry, not a two-handed spear, two separate spears. Um, so so dual, wielding, dual wielding spears, I mean, um, was a particularly kind of neat, neat addition there. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There, there's a lot I could definitely say about this scene, but just as kind of like a high level starting to dive into it i thought it was a uh, really well done yeah i think this I like was one point. Of... Uh, oh please great nope, i get to talk uh i uh <laughs> i like that point a lot and, and something i'll say about kind of female heroes uh, across fantasy is so often they get relegated to the bow right we're just gonna set the yeah. the damsel far off to the side and she'll just blink blink uh, no disrespect to tyler's beloved uh probably second only to you kate bishop who he loves dearly. Uh, but I do think to actually see, you know, a really badass fight and, um, you know, what comes across as her strength, um, mm -hmm. never mind the labor happening, but like she is strong. She yanks the guy backwards. And it's just all about kind of, uh, you know, more more a barbarian class than a ranger class mm -hmm. to speak D&D. &D. 100%. Well, and I think the word that Steph, you used that really stood out to me is this idea of kind of like realism. And this is something that they talked about in that making of segment that I had you watch, Greg, is they wanted to make sure that the Aiel kind of felt like the like ultimate warrior who could do those unrealistic things of like taking on multiple people or battling while, you know, in labor. But then they also talked about wanting everything that she did to be something that they didn't need to like CGI or, you know, choreograph in a way that was unrealistic. They wanted it to all feel like things that a human could actually do in battle. And I feel like that to me is what stood out is I've yeah. seen like the John Wick gun Fu style fights where I'm like, that would never happen, but it's cool. And I've seen the like the Batman four punches and everyone's on the ground. It's like it's accurate, but it's not really what I go to the movies for. And this felt like a balance that I hadn't really seen really effectively. Yeah, that was definitely what I noticed is everything felt very practical. Um, and maybe maybe this is discussed in this behind the scenes footage that I admittedly haven't seen, but I had read a few articles um, where they were talking about the cameras they actually used to shoot that scene. Did either of you read any of that? Yeah. And just like how how the cameras that they were using, the way they were like zooming around and, and doing these shots where, you know, the camera would actually kind of zoom through the action. It, it required extreme like precision and skill on the part of, of the actors, um, the stunt actors, in order to, to pull that off without actually injuring somebody and like whacking them with the camera. So I, again, too, I think that really helped grounded in that realism um and that was another thing too like you know you have this this pregnant woman who isn't going to be hyper mobile right and she's not doing backflips and, and things like that right like again i think it made made a lot of sense for the position her character's in um while again also still being this this fearsome warrior as her her people are like known to be right which is cool 
I think that's exactly right. And that, that camera system, just to um, elaborate and agree with what you said, you know, it, it for people who haven't watched that bonus feature or read any articles, the it's kind of on a robotic arm. I don't know why I said kind of. It is on a robotic arm that's pre-programmed. So uh, they point out the camera is just going to go through its movements on the robot arm kind of at high speed, which means it's a hydraulic arm that could take someone out if it wasn't precisely choreographed and put together. Um, I think the John Wick, uh, I mean, you're just beating up on Keanu for no reason. But uh, <laughs> um, I will also say, uh, you know, who knows when we're recording this, but Mission Impossible was just out in theaters and they have a very elaborate uh, corridor fist fight where the camera is clearly set far back from the action because they couldn't get it into the physical space and they kind of cheated by just shaking the camera a lot and so to watch that kind of you know jankiness compared to this which has been so precisely done um kind of was like oh yeah mission you kind of let me down <laughs> That's well and i think the thing that works so well about this scene is that initially you're just like wow that was amazing and then you get kind of the little bit of um it's not quite a a cliffhanger at the end of the sequence but you see the sword come down and this woman we've been cheering for is kind of um you know she's in trouble and then that doesn't come back until the end of the episode and i think the fact that this isn't just the really cool scene but also something that then gets kind of called back to later on really kind of helps this stick the landing um i could probably do an entire podcast episode about this like five minutes in the snow on the slopes of dragon mount um but we should probably get to other things um any last thoughts that either of the two of you have about this sequence before we move on to the actual episode proper uh, just a shout out to the stunt woman. I did not write down mm -hmm. her name, but they just like found her. They said they're like, oh, we found this amazingly skilled stunt woman with red hair. Uh, it was perfect. And I was like, amazing that they found her. And this seemed to be her big break and totally deserves all the praise. Yeah, I know her last name is Satova and I'm blanking on her first name, but I had definitely like looked up and she's done a done stunt work for a lot of action action things. Um, so super cool. Because there is a lot of performance in it, too, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the, the labor is sold by her acting skills, not just her stunt skills. And I, I don't think stunt people get enough credit in general, but particularly where this is an acting role as much as it is a stunt role was very impressive. No, that's a super good point. Right, right. When I had read about the, the stunt actress, I was thinking like, oh, did she come in, you know, and, and swap out those scenes, right? But it's like, no, actually, it's her the whole time, right? And in a really yeah. all around powerful scene. I agree. Yeah, really well done. I think this is all just a really good way of saying that actors are important and maybe we should pay them and not replace them with AI. Seems like a pretty reasonable stand to be taking. Uh, we immediately jump into this episode after the cold open with making our way through the ways. And I think the ways are really interesting because the only description of them that we get basically in the entire book is it's dark there and so getting to see kind of uh the set design people and you know all of the all of that work together to create an environment that we've had vaguely described but never really described i thought worked really well for me but i'm curious greg i know you're someone who often will say like this worked but it wasn't how i pictured it how did the ways and the black wind at the end of the scene match up with how you were kind of picturing them in the book uh, I would say I think the first half of your question, it was closer. I, I don't know that I'd really pictured the the Black Wind as anything other than just kind of 
dark, right? Yeah. Like, uh, I don't know, like painting black over the animation frame or something. Um, so that I wasn't necessarily expecting in the kind of psychological aspects of it. I don't think exactly matched the book, but fit thematically like so many of the adaptations we've talked about. Mm -hmm. um, but the it's hard to not talk about without noting, you know, as I understand from literally you, this would be the first episode they'd filmed after coming back from COVID. Is that yes, right? that is correct. Um, I actually counted as I was watching this episode. I'm pretty sure actors touch five times throughout the length of these two episodes <laughs> we watched. Wow. Um, and so it did start to feel a little stripped down. Now, I had that in my mind when I was watching it. So, you know, maybe that was in my mind. But, um, you know, we aren't seeing big crowd scenes both because of where we are in the book, but also kind of how uh, the filming circumstances might've been. Um, so I think it kind of worked in their favor that they had this space that they could leave blank, right? And and some yeah. of those bonus features show how they created it come from these little modular pieces of the hexagonal stones. Um, so it all kind of uh, nicely worked in their favor for at least this episode so that they could keep things very small. Yeah, and for me, that kind of, it, it almost felt modular while you were watching it, right? It's so geometric, there's no way that it could possibly be natural. And my immediate response upon seeing that, like you said, it's like hexagons, basically. Uh, it immediately made me like go straight into Dungeons and Dragons land. It felt like they were walking through a grid with a map that I had just drawn down and I could move my territory pieces if I needed to to make room for a big monster so I thought that worked really effectively to almost tap into like old school RPG vibes almost even though as you say it was probably a practical choice to be able to use the same set once and not have to sanitize 18 different COVID locations or whatever they would have been been having to do uh steph what did you think of the ways did you have any kind of response to someone who hadn't read the book in a while but still had maybe some ideas of what was coming yeah um i would say that the way is largely did hold up to what i'd always pictured um and and i'm thinking now i'm processing all of like the the covid modular filming stuff that you guys were just talking about because i actually did not even think about that when i was rewatching it um so that's that's really interesting but yeah even you know, that modularness, just the, the you know, the, the walkways and everything around it just being black. Um, mm -hmm. And then I, I feel like the, again, even if it was deliberate because of COVID, the, the modularness worked really, really well because it's like you couldn't see ahead, right? You couldn't see beyond. And it kind of like kept everything shrouded in, in mystery and in shadow, just like in the way that it's kind of described in the book, right? Like only being able to see so little ahead of you. Um, and worrying about you know falling off the edge and not seeing exactly uh, where that path kind of goes. And so I actually you know feel like that fit really, really well. Um, and I remember I remember like seeing it on screen. And I was like, oh yeah, again, even though it's been ten years, I was like, oh yes, I remember this, right? And so yeah. it was kind of cool that like that that visual for me um, was so uh, so spot on that it just like instantly kind of brought me back to that moment of reading that book. Yeah, and I think for me, what really works about this is that, as you say, and I, I think you're right to highlight the color, I think it just feels so washed out that everything feels like the only color you're getting is all kind of tinged by, tinged by like, porch light, right? It's that like yellowy uh, kind of flickering light. And I think that really kind of creates that atmosphere you're describing of not really being able to tell what's going on. Um, 
Greg, any last thoughts on the ways? I guess I'm just like saying we went through a place. We should talk about that place. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it lasted shorter than it would have in the book, I think. And that doesn't really spoil things in either way. So it was it was. I was almost expecting a long journey. We, uh, when we read, we compare a lot to Lord of the Rings, and you know, this did feel like um, Mordor. Nope. Uh, wherever they fight the Balrog, I, I was totally literally like... trying to re like remember the name of that place. Moria. Moria. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the mines of Moria. Um, and both in that in the in the Lord of the Rings uh movie, especially, you know, it's this should be a thriving civilization and it's fallen. And this again, it has been crafted. It just isn't actually, you know, like brightly lit nice bridges or anything like that there also is a little bit of Dagobah cave to me um uh, people who are so obsessed as i'm gonna go ahead and say it, the three of us know that if you really watch when luke goes into the dark side cave on Dagobah, there are elements there that are constructed it's not an organic cave underneath a tree there is like a doorway kind of in a step that appear to be kind of metal, appear to be something else. This has never been explained in Star Wars lore. So it kind of had that same vibe. And then when you get to the end where you have that vision, it's like, you know, it's it's Joseph Campbell. It's all the cliche stuff about, you know, uh, getting the hero to get the message they need in that moment to kind of come out of the underworld and, and head off to, to have their triumph. And I think that that also highlights to me the fact that the ways feel really artificial. I hadn't really thought of it before, but I think if you're talking about it being constructed, it feels like futuristically constructed. It almost looks like 3D printed to me as opposed to like carved or crafted. And I think that serves really well, especially because, you know, we we do get in in the next episode some hints about the fact that in the past technology was very much a thing. So the idea of this not quite looking as natural as we might expect of something that feels like a cave, I think is a really solid catch. Um, any last thoughts that you have, Steph, about this kind of trip through the ways before we move on to Faldara? No, no, I feel like that uh, that pretty much covers it. I was definitely going to say the, the Lord of the Rings thing as well, and then I was struggling to, to remember the name of the Mines of Moria. So thanks, Greg. <laughs> Speak, friend, and enter. <laughs> I was working really hard to remember where they found all of the like skeleton ghosts in Return of the King. So I was on a very different wavelength from the two of you. Uh, we then get to what I kind of did not identify the first time I saw this show as the COVID scenes, but now I can only see them as the COVID scenes, right? We get a series of scenes in which Moraine argues with the kids and then the kids argue with each other and then uh, like Nynaeve has a brief fight with Aaron and everyone is just yelling at each other. And initially I was like, oh, this show is kind of leaning into the drama. It's leaning into the interpersonal conflict. And now I look back on it and just go, oh, the actors couldn't touch. And so uh, I, I guess I'm curious as kind of the first time viewer and then also Steph as the somewhat someone who hadn't read it in a long time. What was your take on it almost felt like, um, I don't know, like Faldara 90210. There was a lot of teen drama going on in the middle section of this episode. How did that land for you, Greg? Uh, I'm going to jump to a different property, and uh, there is the episode of Game of Thrones that is before the Battle of Winterfell, and people love this episode. I think it's where Jamie and Brienne finally uh, mm, won't spoil yeah. anything. Uh, and so, um, but 
it felt almost exactly like that to me. I think when I finished it, I texted you like, this is the, hey, the world's about to end. Let's sleep together episode. And where <laughs> it's like a little drama, you know, high emotions. And so it it came out as conflict or Congress. Oh, boom. Look at that wordplay. Um, and so uh, uh, I think it, it worked. Um, I, I will say I didn't feel the COVID. I, you know, there's so many bad movies that shot during covid where it's mm. like oh here's this actor alone in an apartment and let's tell the story and it they just feel very sweaty in their effort to do that and i i wouldn't i i think the quality of the character interactions uh made it so i didn't necessarily feel that i was being cheated in some way it, it felt more like this was always the plan yeah, again, I without having this context, I can't say that I even would have noticed any of that. Like the fact that nobody or very few people, right, had touched it all during that episode. Um I I agree with Greg that I think that the scene, especially right when they're they're um kind of confronting each other, particularly over what they've heard, right, from the wind, the black wind. And um I think again it, it hits on some of that the, the teen drama, right? Like the the love triangle, there's, you know, the trust with Moraine, the distrust with Moraine. Um, again, who might be the dragon? You know, there's all all these really cool moments kind of coming together. And I, I think it also did a nice job of just like planting the seed um, of doubt of like, oh my God, are they even, is this even going to work, right? Are they going to tear each other apart before the world has a chance to tear them apart? Um, and so again, I think it's, again, just a really well done, well written, well acted scene. Um, that again for me like i can't even say that i i felt anything was off about it like greg said it was kind of like the plan to do it this way all along um that's i think that's maybe maybe my favorite episode um of of the season thinking back on it and i think in big part because of the execution of of that sequence yeah and i think that that scene works so well in large part because as you say they're kind of layering conflict on top of conflict on top of conflict right the fact that this is both the love triangle conversation and do you hate matt and is Nynaeve giving away a secret and oh by the way the world is going to end and we might all die i think is a really effective way to to set up that conflict in a way that you know kind of keeps you engaged as we're kind of switching from from thing to thing the thing that jumped out to me more than anything else as a book reader is the fact that there's a love triangle here because i'm pretty mm -hmm. sure the last time that me and greg discussed perrin and Egwene being the thing it was the prologue of the first book when we were reading about them as nine-year-olds so greg what was your thinking on perrin out of nowhere now being a love interest for Egwene potentially uh I don't remember that conversation, but I hope we weren't rooting for the nine-year-olds to hook up. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think uh, it didn't... I, I, I think my bias as a book reader was just that it didn't feel viable, right? It's like right. it's it's like a way to increase tension. You know, it's maybe Rachel will be with Joey. And you're like, she's never going to be with Joey, right? Like, so um, I, I hope that's a very current reference for all our teenage viewers uh so, it weirdly uh, is yeah <laughs> um no, so i think it just felt false to me um because if anything and this might be i guess some of the criticism i'm missing a lot of the pairing content that should be in the book or should be in the show would be in the book that i feel like he's been thinned out a bit and 
it's not that the things aren't happening to him. It's just that they don't seem to matter as much as these other plot lines. And so I would put this kind of, is he going to be in love with Egwene? Uh, is Egwene going to end up with him in that category of like, well, but like he should be doing cooler stuff. So it, it didn't really land for me. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Tyler, Tyler knows that Perrin is one of my least favorite characters and yet, yet it's his favorite. So I was, I know, I know, I know. Um, so yeah, for me, the the Perrin and Egwene relationship in the show always also, it felt a little strange. Um, and again, some of that was like, I was like, oh, in the books, I, I definitely read him as having this like big brother protective mentality with her um, that I definitely never read into as, as romantic in any way. Um, you know, whereas in the show, it becomes like a, a big thing. Um, which, which again, I'm fine. I'm fine with there being a difference, but <laughs> yeah, it, it felt like me too. If, you know, if Perrin was this this loyal to Rand, and that's kind of what it definitely seems like, um, it, it felt like it wouldn't have even gotten as far as it did seem to in the show, yeah. right? Um, and so that always, I will admit, like that relationship always felt a little strange to me, um, and kind of there again to add some of that tension. But I, I never expected anything to really like kind of come of it. Um, and, I, and, you know, it's interesting, too, because they had added his, like, Perrin's wife as a character right in the show, um, which hadn't been a thing in, in the books, as I recall. Yeah, and I think for me, what is so interesting about the adaptation of the television show is, as you're saying, Steph, sometimes I think they're adding things to try to kind of highlight on drama or try to take things that, you know, has been taken out of the book and replace it with something else of interest, right? Greg, you were saying we're missing some parent content. I think the television show kind of writer's answer would be, yeah, we're missing some of the parent adventure content, but we're getting a lot of extra parent kind of character work content because of the introduction of his wife and the love triangle and all of these kind of new things that are happening. Um, and as we're kind of thinking about this episode overall, there's this new content that we're getting in terms of this conflict between all of, I'm going to call them the kids, even though they're basically adults in the television show. Uh, but then we immediately follow that up with a bunch of brand new content that I think every book reader is thrilled to see. Uh, Greg, were you aware uh, in the television show that Nynaeve and Lan are potentially in a relationship? Because you missed that in the book. Oof, just just salt in my wounds. Uh, I missed <laughs> one thing, and that's it. Uh, yeah. Oh man. Uh, and and it largely works. And you know, you're you're joking and you're you're uh, goofing on me in good sport. But I do think, um, you know, I think it just plays better on TV when you get quality actors you should pay uh kind of reacting and seeing the little gestures and so on you know i i do uh I, again you're you did it in good fun but as a reader i am somebody who like you know if there's a little bit of dialogue and then like a sentence of description and then more dialogue my eye kind of jumps from the first half of the dialogue to the second yeah. and so i think it's easy to miss those kind of subtle clues and and gestures and so on um so it plays much better on the screen um it also uh you know just another reminder that i i still don't know why but i was picturing Nynaeve as like an elderly woman in the first book so it was like <laughs> you know no shame on you know the older ladies uh you know getting theirs but i was like well you know to have two young attractive people it's like yeah you want to see them get together and and so on now i'm just came across as ageist and sexist and a bad <laughs> reader so i should shut up <laughs> uh, 
what what is the moment in the book that hints at it because again it's it's been a decade refresh my memory yeah so in the book we basically get like three scenes in which Nynaeve and Lan are comparing their like hunting and tracking skills and they're like impressed by each other and then we immediately flash forward at the end of the book to Rand overhearing their like pseudo breakup and so um, oh. you can piece together that there is a relationship there, but it basically all happens off screen. And so on the TV right, show, right. getting to see that development, I thought was just awesome. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do kind of remember that now because I, I do remember in the books having a moment too where I was like, wait, what? Oh, they were like having a thing. Oh, it's over now <laughs> before I like realized yeah. what was happening. But I, I really liked that. Right. It was kind of kind of fun. Um, yeah, I think I think the relationship is handled well on the show again, too. And I'm someone who's I'm a huge stickler for the pacing of relationships in TV shows. Mm. Um, again, not to like bring back Game of Thrones, but I felt like there there was one particular relationship in that show that really got to me um, that I, I like to vent about uh, again, because I felt the pacing was just, you know, super rushed and kind of forced to make something happen. Right. Um, and I, I felt like this one, even in a, you know, 10, 10 episode run, right? It's 10 eight. episodes, right? Eight. <laughs> See, I keep messing that up. Mm -hmm. I don't remember which ones I watched. Eight. Yeah. So eight, even more, um, or even, you know, even more impressive. I mean, um, you know, I think it, this didn't feel rushed. Like it felt very organic. And, and I think a lot of that is, you know, in due part because of what Greg was talking about. I think we did a really good job of making those little moments, um, you know, really stand out and, and kind of tell that story. Uh, so again, I I quite like their relationship in, in both the books but and the TV show, but I think it, it really worked in the TV show because of those little things. Yeah, and I think the um, scene where... Oh, sorry, go, go ahead, Greg. You're no, nodding you to me. Uh, I think the scene mm -hmm. where they go to uh, Lan's kind of... Not family isn't the right word, but almost his, his found family in Faldara. And that is a sequence that I think works so well because it gives you world building and character and you're not quite sure what's going on. So there's a little mystery. And that is just a sequence that I could watch a dozen times. Lan and Nynaeve like playing tag in the street, trying not to have her know that he's following her and she's aware that it it just works for me, man. Like, give me a good meet cute in fantasy world, then I will watch your show as long as you want me to. <laughs> yeah, I do. I love that whole scene. Um, and I, I think, Tyler, I really like what you were talking about with the world building because they that episode does a lot of lift for Land's story. Yeah. Um, and again, his family and his, his origins. Um, and I think the way that's kind of woven in together with him and Nynaeve's story was really, really artfully done. I mean, I was essentially going to make the same point you're both making, but about the episode or the earlier episode where we saw all the, the guardians and got to see kind of Lan's brotherhood. Um, and yeah. so I kind of take the two points together to just mean when really develop the character much more, everything means a little bit more. And so to see previously how devoted he was to his position and then to see essentially, as you're saying, all the things he's giving up, he gave up the family, he gave up his actual lineage he gave up uh eventually naive uh to be a steadfast uh you know member of, of or companion to moraine i think all that just works really well um you know tip of the iceberg storytelling we we see enough that we can tell all the conflict that must have happened behind him and within that mm. 
And I think once we've kind of really effectively established these characters in this relationship, we then get to the last section of this episode, which is the part that I personally had no issues with, but I worried that new viewers would. Because the kind of the last two things that happen in this episode are we find out that Rand is the dragon reborn via a series of flashbacks. And oh no, that's actually in the next episode. Well, I only have one thing to talk about in this episode. It is Rand being revealed to be the dragon reborn. Uh, so how did that reveal land? I feel like we talked in an earlier episode. The TV show got rid of the mystery about whether or not Moraine is kind of a good person and replaced it with this mystery about who is the dragon reborn and then kind of played the game of not giving you any clues until the episode that it was revealed. So Greg, I'm curious what your thought was on kind of this new way of introducing the kind of answer to the mystery of who is the dragon reborn. Uh, I mean, it's hard to judge since I did not experience it really. Um, but I will say that I, um, prefer the book. I, I haven't said that a ton in this discussion as much as I would have expected kind of at the onset of our discussion of these television episodes. Um, but I do think it worked better to have the kind of slow boil of uh, Rand coming to grips with being the dragon than the full like, who is it? Who can it be? Now, I, you know, our last guest, no offense to Steph, to speak of the last guest, our last guest who canceled on us was supposed to be a just TV show watcher. And so our show has just got this gaping hole of content because he blew us off. And I hope he's listening to this. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I think that perspective is something we're lacking in this discussion. Somebody who had no idea and really experienced the mystery. I felt myself just waiting for them to confirm that it was Rand, not actually kind of who could it be? Because no part of me thought they would have changed something so mm. major within it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I kind of feel like the person who hasn't read the books because it's, it's been so long. But um, again, I keep trying to think back to where my head was it at that time and I, I do feel like I had you know you have a pretty strong feeling that it is Rand in the books right that's that's my recollection oh yeah from the um, beginning yeah from from the beginning right okay just just checking that but it does they, they draw it out for a while as I recall um yeah but yeah I do I do remember in the show like again I, I didn't think the show like like you said Greg was gonna pull a fast one and make it make it somebody else I think they would have they would have lost so many people on that but um <laughs> um yeah, I, I did, you know, for, for them to kind of tease it out in the way they do, and then it very suddenly kind of um, confirms, right? Yeah. Uh, and like, they're like, okay, oh, who is it? Kind of passing it back and forth. Oh, maybe, maybe Matt, maybe it's Egwene, maybe whoever. Um, and then like, oh, no, it's Rand. <laughs> like, yeah. like, it's very, it's very dramatic, very sudden. Um, but I actually think it makes for kind of a captivating ending to that episode. And I, I do, I love, and, and here, stop me if I'm, mixing my episodes up here but when the, yeah i think it's that episode he ends up right going to moraine and being like it's me and, yeah. and even she is like holy shit <laughs> right mm -hmm. um you know so i i do like that aspect of it a lot um that she is you know we see her also being just as, as stunned right and, and shocked as anybody yeah and I think that that is what kind of almost makes this work for me is this series has changed the point of view from Rand to Moraine. And so us getting shocked when she is shocked, I think, is what makes this kind of worth 
the what I think of as kind of a clumsy way of answering a mystery that you didn't really leave too many breadcrumbs for, mostly just red herrings throughout. Um, in the interest of keeping this to not be a two hour long podcast episode, I am going to demand that we now talk about the final episode of this show, episode eight. And we need to begin with a scene in a completely different language, which I loved. Greg, what was your thought on the cold open, which I can finally now say we do have an adaptation of the prologue of the first book of the Wheel of Time? Mm. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to delay us in this discussion, but I have to confess that I totally, uh, to quote my chemistry teacher, Natty Bumpoed this uh, because I... Uh, you know, we do not condone the sharing of passwords. But if, for example, you were using an account where two other people on your same Zoom call had recently watched the episode, they might have stopped the replay at the, and now a scene from season two, so as not to watch that scene. And when I hit play, assuming it would restart at the beginning of that episode, I instead didn't see the, and now a scene from, and instead just watched that scene. And I was like, what the heck is going on? So uh, I will just admit that my viewership was a little spoiled and a little strange because I'm like, who's who's this? Like, what is what is happening here? And then realized as the credits hit that I, what had happened, re rewound and watched from the beginning of the episode. So so I had not a pure experience uh, with this. Now, the actual cold open, I think, was very cool. Um because I did like that it kind of threw you in and just gave you these two other actors just totally having the confrontation that we expected in so many ways at the very beginning of the show, while still making the setting, and I know I'm kind of skipping to the end of it, so futuristic, which is not something that I have very much experienced in this world, right? We had flying cars. We had, we had had a hint in the first episode of these kind of skyscrapers in decay and, and you know, covered in moss or whatever. Uh, fun fact, so, um, the skyscrapers in decay in the first episode is exactly the same skyline that we see at the end of this shot. That makes sense. Pay the visual effects stars for just one job and then just cover one with moss. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so that was super cool. And that still, to me, is probably the thing that I'm most intrigued by with the show episodes in terms of things I've not gotten from the book. So, um, yeah, mm. and it was it was fun. I mean, can you get away with a cold open in your first episode in a made-up language with subtitles? I guess the Lord of the Rings movies would say you can, but you know, it, I think it's a hard ask. Whereas here, everybody's bought in and you can do this kind of crazy thing. Um, and they'll keep watching your episode. Yeah. Mm. Steph, keep talking. Yeah. I, I thought this was, a. Oh, sorry. I was gonna say, I thought, um, yeah, that this was a really cool opening. I remember again, reading the book. So the way that Greg said earlier, where sometimes with dialogue, his eyes kind of gravitate to the end of dialogue. I'm like that with really long descriptive passages, which is terrible, right? Because that's where like world building happens. But, but you know, that, that's how I read. And so I remember talking to you, Tyler, reading these books and I forget, I, I feel, I don't remember what book this was, but there was some reference to like cars, right? Old, old cars, old automobiles. Yep. And I was like, what are you talking about? And um, you were like, yeah, did, <laughs> do you not remember that? And I was like, no, what? And I had to go back and look at it and that, was clearly one of those passages that I had just kind of glossed over and, and it didn't occur to me like what I had read. And so at first the whole 
kind of time as a circle thing had kind of just gone completely over my head. Um, and then I started really looking for it after that. And it's, I love that about the books, how those are kind of sprinkled in there. Um, but, but speaking about the episode specifically, you know, again, I, I remember putting myself in the headspace of someone who hadn't read those books. And I imagine getting to that scene and being like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. what? And, and kind of like to Greg, right? Um, even though you had kind of a, a you know, let, let's call it a non-traditional viewing experience with that. Um, yeah, it, I think even even going into that, knowing you're watching, you know, what you're watching, um, that's still kind of jarring, right? It's, it's, a, it's neat. I think it's a really great, great open for that episode. I think that that scene works really well because one, as you're saying, at the end of the scene, you can really be like, oh, my God, what, you know, where is all of the sci-fi coming from? That is kind of put on top of the fact that we don't know who is speaking most of the discussion until we learn that that is Luz Theron Telamon, the original dragon, although now in the show, the original dragon reborn, an interesting, very small tweak. Um, mm -hmm. My favorite thing about that scene is that if you pay really close attention the way you only can if you are almost in double-digit times watching uh, this show, you will notice that there are a couple of words that they they say that are words you'd be familiar with from the book that are translated slightly differently at the bottom of the of the screen. So, for example, when the, the woman is talking to the man, she refers to his power. The word that she uses in the old tongue is sidine for power. Or there's another place where I think um, they use the, the word servant and they actually say like uh, Sedai. The, we learned in the previous uh, episode that I Sedai means servant of all. They actually say Sedai not to be standing for the organization, but just as the word servant. And so there's a couple of really cool kind of linguistic things. It reminded me a lot. Um, I don't know whether you remember this, Greg, in the early days of Game of Thrones, I feel like there were like 800 news articles written about how impressive it was that they made up Dothraki. That's that's kind of what I felt here is the mm -hmm. attention to detail in, in little words that we know showing up in the dialogue just worked really, really well for me. Yeah, and I, I just, a credit to the actors that, and this is actually a comment for the whole episode, like a, episode eight, big finale, you kind of expect Helm's Deep, Siege of Minas Tirith, and you get a little of that. But it's actually a very quiet episode. It's a lot of yeah. powerful kind of talky scenes, right? Dialogue heavy. Um, and I think in that confrontation, the way that's staged, it ends up echoing so well what happens with Rand in this mm -hmm. episode that um, you kind of get this reinforced idea. Like you're talking about the language reinforces that we're, we're going over this again. And this is another kind of visual way to represent that. And yeah. very smart. I mean, uh, you know, these people seem to know what they're doing. Pay them. Uh, unless we have anything else to say about the cold open, I think we then get into kind of the meat of the episode, which begins with kind of the fallout from Rand leaving. We get a little bit of discussion between him and Moraine about what they're doing and what the plan is. And then we also get the scene that I was going to reference earlier until I remembered it was in this episode, which is Lan and Nynaeve's more or less breakup and also her telling him how to find Moraine. Um, and I found that scene to be really interesting because it was another place where I was kind of concerned, would a non-book reader be okay with this? 
because it is a really abrupt breakup between those two characters. Um, and I don't think we get kind of the Lan is doing it for Moraine-ness that we we kind of get in, in the book very clearly. So, Greg, I guess I'm kind of talking in general about the early episode character drama with a particular focus on Nynaeve, but what stood up to you before we got to the, like, explosions and battle section of the episode? Uh, just a, a passing reference that, I mean, all of this was really structured quite differently than the end of the first book and, yeah. and we'll leave it vague at that but that I was still kind of reeling from that surprise I think I kind of thought everybody were they were about to pick themselves up and catch up with them in like we're with you too Mr. Frodo um, but I don't I, I think I, because I was shocked that that wasn't happening it's like okay now it just becomes let's move these pieces around and put them somewhere interesting so that when we are you know there are pieces of the book that we kind of hear about as rumor because there was nobody there. It seemed like the goal here was let's move someone we care about into all these different areas that we want to show on the show. Yeah. Steph, did anything else stand out to you in kind of the, the early section of this episode? There's kind of a lot of short sequences that I don't want to walk through one at a time, but was there anything else in there that really kind of jumped out at you or was exciting? Yeah. I'm thinking a lot about when, when Nineveh, is, or Nynaeve, <laughs> that was a old, old book pronunciation uh, mm -hmm. cropping up um, before we knew how to say these names. Um, but yeah, when, when Nynaeve's telling Lan about tracking Moraine, right? Yeah. And in, in the show, she talks about like Moraine has a tell. Um, and I don't think we ever find out what that tell is in the show, unless I'm mistaken, right? Correct. And I don't, that wasn't something from the books, as I recall, correct? It is not. Yeah. Uh, and so, okay, cool. So just, just confirming that, but I'm definitely curious to see if that comes to fruition at any point, if there's, if we ever find out what that, that tell allegedly is, because that was an interesting kind of, a uh, addition, yeah. um, you know, that that's really interesting given like Lan and Moraine's warder Ace I relationship. Um, but also, also Nynaeve and Lan's relationship. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it makes, yeah, I don't know. I'm just curious to see what, if anything, kind of happens with that or if it was just kind of written in there, you know, to, to get them from point A to point B, right? Or if that will end up serving some bigger bigger plot purpose down the road. So that was something that um, had jumped out to me that I, I was like, wait a second, what does Sertel? Um, yeah, didn't know if, if you had picked up on that. Yeah, I definitely think of the the tell as being, I almost think of it as like a MacGuffin, right? They needed an excuse right. to be able to have Moraine leave on her own, but then also have the, the kids not follow her. And so they kind of created this, um, you know, I, I almost think it's like a writing trick, right? Sometimes you just need to say something so that you can say that you explained it, even if the explanation doesn't mean anything. And I think that's kind of what they were doing here. Um, the other version of this that I saw as interesting is if this is something kind of new that we're curious how it pays off. The other thing that I thought the writers did really effectively in this episode and even a bit in the previous one is give us some of that kind of like MacGuffin move things just based on exposition through the character of Min, who we got for the first time in the previous episode and kind of reappears in this one. Um, so, Greg, did you have any thoughts either on kind of this um, discussion of the tell as a MacGuffin or kind of Min, who I think if you hadn't read the books, you could very easily view her as a MacGuffin machine, right? She just sees visions to get people where they need to be. 
Um, I kind of had lost track of the fact that when we skipped one of the cities, we kind of were potentially skipping Min. So when she showed up, I was excited because that's a character I enjoy and I, I like her power um, as as something that moves the plot. I mean, you're not wrong about that, that she kind of just helps push people along. Um, but it is a cool character and the kind of burden we've seen that's a part of that, right? Um, you know, and that it just feels like very old mythology, the the, the soothsayer who can see things but can't change them, essentially. Um, and so that was very exciting to see her show up. Um, and then it was kind of like we got a little scene with her and I was like, oh, that that's it. I mean, she doesn't have a lot in the first book, so that kind of would make sense if they kind of truncated it down to that. So when they came back to kind of fill in more of the plot, I was glad to see that she got a little bit more. And I assume we'll see her in the future as well. And I think actually this reminds me of something that, Steph, you had asked me while we were, were watching this. Is we were kind of talking about Faldara and Min and a few of these characters. And one of the things that I know stood out to you and also to me the first time is that Faldara is very much coded um, kind of. Chinese in a lot of ways and Robert Jordan does a lot of stuff where he's kind of like taking markers of different cultures and different societies and putting them together but I found this kind of like the Northlands as kind of Asia was a really interesting kind of take and choice to make, especially given that we had kind of gotten, you know, what almost felt like um, kind of very multicultural, very not one kind of cultural representation in one place. And then we get to Faldara and it feels very kind of upfront Chinese in a lot of the representation in terms of the armor and um, some of the uh, construction and architecture, things like that. So I'm curious, uh, Steph, what you kind of thought of that choice to kind of reinterpret this and and put it in a very kind of like Eastern angle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not something that's unique to the show by any means, right? I think a lot of times, you know, it, it sometimes it's done to a to a tropey extent, right? Um, but I do think it was tastefully done um, in this show. And I also, again, appreciate, you know, the casting of Asian actors and actresses um, to represent the, the, those people. Yes, who should also be paid, of course. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I mean, again, I, I thought it was well done. I remember one of my questions when we were talking about it, Tyler, was I was trying to remember, again, you know, again, that, that culture not being specifically coded as Asian um, but there were occasionally like passing references, right? Yeah. And we were kind of talking about this, like different nations weren't always explicitly raced or, or coded ethnically. So this was kind of interesting to see this like visually represented in what was very clearly, um, I think mostly Chinese, um, just thinking back to what I had seen. So so yeah, I, I liked it. Um, and, and again, the, going back to the previous episode, you know, land scene, uh, in his in, in the village and going back and like seeing the family and you know they're having like what looks like some kind of like hot pot or again like kind of traditional Chinese meal like I just thought that it all tied together really well right it all felt really authentic and like it all made sense and fit for his world building once again and, and I just want to say you know the thing that came to mind um is Firefly which I think you're still allowed to yeah. like Firefly as long as you say Josh Whedon <laughs> is a gross guy um, so uh, Firefly they very much said 
okay, if we're in the near future, at the moment, America and China are the big powers, let's stretch that into the future. And the mm -hmm. culture will be kind of defined by those two cultures. Um, well, one, it was a lot of white people then, not a lot mm -hmm. of Asian actors in the mix. Um, but also it felt like in the context of this episode with that um, cold open, it's kind of like another version of that, right? It's like, oh, well, you know, if, if we're thinking about the societies that I guess existed and will exist again. I never know how to talk about these things with wheel of time. Right. That is correct. Um, it does. See, <laughs> and then it does seem like all of that would be present. Right. Um, mm -hmm. It's also just a way to really separate this society. This society could easily be the wall from game of Thrones. And that is yeah. Kind yeah. Of very much Northern Europe, Viking stuff. So let's just throw it somewhere completely different, make the landscape totally different. Um, even though it's a wall at the end of the world, seemingly. Yeah, yeah. While we're on the, the topic of kind of the, the Chinese influence too, I think it also makes sense because the, the Ace Sedai, who are the other big, you know, powerful group, um, their their symbol is literally like the Taiji symbol. So the yep. black and white, what most people are familiar with, you might think of it like the peace symbol or whatever, right? But the, the black and white, it's the seal of Tarvalon. It's the seals that we see at the end of, of that episode, right? Um, and so again, I think there's, that's also why it makes sense, you know, oh yeah, Faldara, because they had that relationship, you know, with the Ace Sedai that we hear about, um, that there's also some of that influence kind of spanning across both, both cultures, both groups, right? Well, and I think Greg, as you're kind of talking about like this being an interesting kind of mashup of, as Steph is saying, these kind of like real world cultural influences along with this sort of like fantasy trope of like the wall and the last place kind of standing against the darkness. Um, this kind of leads me very directly into the first of kind of two big climactic sequences, which is the big battle at Faldara, which I feel is the only moment where I'm like, oh, this is where you feel the COVID because doing a big climactic battle sequence without the ability to have a crowd of extras clearly influenced what they were doing here. Um, what, what were your thoughts on kind of this big epic battle sequence? Um. Yeah, I think I think that is how I felt. And I had, have previously said I think the CG on the Trollocs can get a little janky. Mm -hmm. There was some better moments here, but so much of it um, became a mass of kind of dark objects moving on a dark background that you could kind of lose sight of all that. And, and you know, I, I'm somebody who puts up with BBC Doctor Who, so I understand a television budget for effects. It's not endless. They had to pay for the robot camera in the last episode, so they they skimped yep. here. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, I think the tension of the the women channeling worked because you kind of it, it it almost became a ticking clock, right? Like it's it's counting down as as you see one woman fall and then the other and then the other, but in terms of like pure visuals, it really kind of let me down a little. Yeah. Um, and I will say I was expecting Rand to just kind of pop in on that plot line and that didn't happen. And that surprised me. Hmm. Yeah. Big, big, like mm, on horseback medieval kind of battle scenes have never been my jam. Um, again, I, I like scenes where again, being someone who's really interested in, in combat arts, like where I can really kind of dissect what's happening stylistically, um, you know. And again, that's why that that scene we talked about previously in the uh, you know in the in the previous episode was so powerful. I think. Um, and so for me, like, yeah, what what makes this whole 
sequence work is is the channeling. Um, and again, now that I'm thinking about the the COVID restrictions, was that a was that a scene, Tyler, that you noticed? It, they don't hold hands, right? But I nope. think the weaves are touching. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And so that's now that I'm thinking about this, um, I'm like, ah, you know, that's that's kind of clever too, right? Because I think in the books, often, right, they link hands, and that's how they're they're kind of uh, connecting their, their channeling to each other, if I recall. Um, so I think this was kind of, kind of a cool way to, to kind of get at that, right. Without obviously having to have the actors come into contact with each other, but, but yeah, also again, just a really, I think, powerful scene, um, you know, the, the, the women kind of being the, the kind of the last bastion, um, in this battle, uh, just the five of them, like there's something really powerful and, and cool about that. Well, and I think, Greg, you nailed this earlier when you said they were trying to get all of the characters in kind of all of the important places. And I think on the wall itself is the one place we didn't get that, right? If we're dividing this battle into, you know, uh, the big wave of Trollocs trying to get through the wall and then the big wave of Trollocs trying to get past the women, the second of those is much more engaging because we care about two of the characters who are involved in it. Whereas like uh, the the sequence with, I, I don't know if that's supposed to be Agelmar or someone else, but the, the Lord who is defending the wall, I'm kind of like, yeah, okay, he's shooting his crossbow. He's probably going to die. I, it doesn't do much for me. As soon as we get over to the, the girls, I'm like, oh, these are characters I care about. This matters. And I think that, as you're saying, just makes a huge difference between those two halves of the battle. Uh, and that's totally how I feel about Helm's Deep, too. It's like, I don't really care what's happening on the wall, right? They, there's that yeah. other elf dude, but you're like, I don't care about this elf dude. Um, and then when they bust the wall, you're like, oh, no, Gimli, Legolas, Aragorn, it, it, they're really in danger now. Um, and so... Uh, you know, we should turn this into a Lord of the Rings podcast at some point, but um, obviously, um, so I, I think that was a part of that. And then I would lump in with that. The, I had no idea what was going on in the other plot line where it's like, let's go pickaxe a giant stone. Yeah. And it was such a departure from how similar events happen in the book. I was like, I don't care about this at all. I don't know these dudes. And then they kind of similarly toss parent into that scene mm -hmm. um and it's like oh okay i i guess i care now but it doesn't really work and then for other reasons i wanted matt to be there too and it's like oh wait no he's gone like i don't know it, it just felt shakier in mm -hmm. those moments than it did in the in the mm -hmm. kind of women channeling scenes well, and I think then let's talk about that pair and half of the sequence, because I will agree with you. I got nothing out of men digging out the throne with pickaxes. I got very little out of Perrin sulking about the way of the leaf. But you give me a good loyal motivational speech and I will watch that for as long as you would like me to. So I agree with you. Definitely the weakest of the three kind of big plot lines here, but one or two pretty exceptional scenes that I thought like at least made me care enough, even though not ideal. What were your thoughts on that section, Steph? I'm still just laughing at, at <laughs> the stone pickaxe. Like I get nothing out of watching men just hack away <laughs> at a rock. And it's so, it's so true to the point where I was like, Oh, right. That like, literally as we're talking about it, I was like, Oh yeah, that scene. What do I have to say about that scene? <laughs> it's so <laughs> memorable. Right. Um, I, I actually like Perrin's little way of the leaf 
struggles. And, and I think that's hinted at, you know, a little bit earlier in, in the series. Um, and I know that's one of the things you appreciate about him, Tyler, is he's this yeah. kind of pacifist, contemplative kind of character. And again, for a character who's, who's you know, personally not my favorite, um, I do think this was a good attempt to like start kind of fleshing him out a bit. Um, and so, I, again, I don't know that this episode was the perfect time to have that that moment like well the world's about to end bro like i don't know maybe now is not the time for the wave of the leaf but um i can also kind of understand where he's coming from right um so so yeah again like that scene i could i could do without it but i do appreciate uh you know trying to trying to use it to kind of get i, I guess to give his character something to do right yeah it's like what else is he kind of doing in that moment, not not a whole lot of things. So I think it was it was a little bit of of not not quite sure where to put Perrin in that exact moment because Matt's you know MIA and yeah. In the second Mission Impossible reference of the night, I will say the the new kind of Macquarie Cruise uh, regime on those films they build the action sequences around how many people are involved, and so like oh well we have eight people so we need two bombs going off right now and these two will be here and, and like it's flawed i'm not saying those are masterpieces but this was like a failure of that kind of system it's like yeah. oh no we forgot mm. perrin uh we didn't <laughs> put him anywhere um i won't disagree that uh loyal speeches are good i don't know that i expected loyal to be such an advocate for the way of the leaf but I will say part of what hurt them in my mind is that the previous scene where uh, the tinkerers just demonstrate the way of the leaf was so much more powerful to me um, yeah. actually seeing it in action. I mm. think this couldn't compare to that. So it just kind of felt a little deflated, which is unfair, but kind of my true reaction. If we are talking about the uh, Perrin Loyal section, I think we need to kind of conclude this before moving on to our last segment by talking about the end of that segment, which is also the end of the episode. Um, a bunch of people get stabbed at the end of this episode who don't get stabbed at the end of the first book. Um, what What is your take on Loyal ending season one bleeding on the floor? I think I forgot that happened. Uh, no, <laughs> I think that maybe I tuned out of those so much uh, entirely. But I mean, that sequence just felt so far off. And so I found myself trying to place it into book two with some of the events that start out that book. And that uh -huh. didn't work either. So um, I think it felt and this is the same problem with the rand revelation it's like you are building tension into something that probably really works if you're just coming to this as a show but it so doesn't jive with what i know these characters have to do or how things are quote unquote supposed to flow that i feel like it's fake tension like he's fine like he'll just get up and be good like <laughs> so i don't know maybe that's not fair at all but that's how it felt to me <laughs> he certainly looks he looks very dead in the show, yeah. right? Like I was like, he, I mean, this is many stabs that he has has just taken. But at the same time, I'm like, I don't, I don't think they kill him off, right? And you know, so that's why it was like, you know, but it, but it certainly, for all intents, like looks that way, right? So you could very yeah. easily, as as just a show watcher, interpret that and walk away with that. So I, I am curious, right? Like, um, you know, how they how they kind of make sense of that. Um, I believe I've heard in interviews that they plan 
they've announced, right? Didn't they even say like, oh no, he's okay. <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, they've at least said he will be in future seasons. Okay. Mm. Yes. Yes. That's true. That's true. It wasn't that specific. Um, but yes. And, and I have other thoughts here, but I'm going to hold off because I, I, here's where I'm forgetting what's, what's all in that first book and what's not. Um, yeah. But yeah, just, just curious to see uh, how they kind of come back with that character. I think we all are because that is my biggest head scratcher of this episode as a book reader. Uh, this leaves us with one last sequence, which is Rand and the Dark One and their battle at the Eye of the World, which is extremely different from what happens in the books, but is actually very similar. If you are reading or if you are reading the books along with us, uh, next week we will actually be discussing a sequence that is almost identical to some of what we. We see in this Rand versus the Dark One chapter. So mm. get ready for that. Uh, Greg, now knowing that we're going to read about this in a week, what are your thoughts on this this sequence? Wait, have I read it already? You have not. No. It is, okay. yes, another week. <laughs> so I am reading it next week, so they're going to hear it in like two weeks. Uh, sorry, uh, I, oh, I'm breaking all the rules of the podcast by revealing that. Uh, they will um, actually hear it next week, because remember, this is airing uh, after oh, the episode that we're recording I, next. Yes. Yeah. Uh, maybe I took a vacation. Sorry, listeners. Uh, my mind is just a, a thick pudding at this point. Um, things I liked. Uh the Dark One's costume stood out to me. Yeah. I'm like, this is rad. This is like fantasy uh, tux, right? And um, actually reminded me of uh, The Last Jedi. They go to the casino planet and there's all these like space tuxedos. And they're like, we need formal wear that evokes those emotions, but also is in space. And it kind of had that same vibe to me. Like it totally would have fit in. Um, it. I, I I hate that this is my drum I keep beating this episode, but I, I kept waiting for the things from the book to happen. And so few of them did. I was yeah. like, oh, this is just shocking to me that this is all constructed a little differently. And I don't know. Some of those might have been COVID choices. Some of those might have just been they wanted to kind of slow things down a little. Um, it is enthralling for a scene of just talking. I will give it that credit. But I was so much more interested in seeing the like stabby stabby stuff that I was sad that that didn't kind of all come together in the way I expected. Yeah. Trying not to spoil anything for anybody working in one direction instead of both. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Plus one to the design of the dark one. I, I get definitely like very Neil Gaiman vibes from that. Mm. Like um, it definitely feels like a character that he could have designed. Um even just down to his like physical appearance, right? I was like, ooh, like not necessarily what I had pictured in in my mind reading those books, but I was like, yeah, okay, I like this better. Forget whatever I had pictured, right? <laughs> like this is this is perfect. Um, I think the the thing that doesn't work for me in in the ending is some of the rand the rand stuff with Egwene, right? And like what's real, what's not real, felt like it was just a little drawn out for me. Um, there's all this other like exciting actiony kind of stuff going on. Um, and, and, you know, again, here we have the dragon reborn supposed to be kind of the crux and, and the real kind of piece holding this all together. And I, I guess I was like expecting something a bit bigger yeah. from all of that. Right. And we don't really get like that big moment of, of like magic power and things like that. 
Um, and so that was just, again, I think just the way that it was interspliced with everything else going on, it just felt a little slower, a little muddier. Um, again, not to like keep, we keep talking about other shows, but like it, it also evoked for me, um, you know, in Game of Thrones, when, when Danny goes to, um, gosh, I, I can't even remember the name of it, but it's after, after, um, her husband, right, is killed. Um, yep. and I'm blanking on his name. Cause I've had, like, five yeah. Cal Drogo. Exactly. Um, right. And, and she's talking to the witch afterwards and she's given, you know, she's, she's given that kind of dream like sequence, right. Where she, for a moment thinks that she's actually back with him and they have their child and, and it's, it's, it's a very similar kind of, um, feeling right between those two scenes. And I, this is one where I think Game of Thrones did it better. <laughs> yeah. I thought that scene was like, was just better, more, more, you know, better, better done than the, the Rand version we got here. And I just felt like the Rand version just kind of slowed slowed that ending a little bit it's fine like you know i but but wasn't kind of what i was hoping for to stick the landing yeah i think that there's this thing that action movies and television have been doing for the last maybe like 10 15 years which is like build to this like giant crescendo and then subvert audience expectations by doing a really quiet conclusion instead of like a big explosive one um the the movie that jumps out to me in my recollection although this is probably just showing my age more than anything else is the matrix reloaded where there's like an epic build-up and then the like conclusion of that movie is a 15 minute conversation with a dude in a room full of televisions um and this kind of mm -hmm. felt like that but as you're saying i think the reason that that move works really well is because you feel the pace really change you get kind of this frenetic yeah. pace going and then you know slam on the brakes and it's hard to really slam on the brakes when you're intercutting between two other action sequences that exactly. are going on at the same time exactly i think i would have yeah because you know me i'm i'm fine with quiet endings i love them but i think this was again it was just the the pacing switching back and forth that yeah. kind of broke that for me exactly yeah and yes, i think also that uh well sorry i was jumping in and you know it, it makes in addition to what you you both just said how it's like rand has to just kind of lay there for a while while he's having his visions and yeah. so it then it's like every time those scenes are moving so slow i'm worried for rand laying on the ground while he <laughs> while the dark one confronts moraine and then it's yeah it, it, i think you're absolutely right that it's an issue with the pacing of the three um not being coordinated yeah, and I think that to some degree, this feels like the kind of thing that maybe maybe this is an indirect COVID effect, right? Maybe if you had a truly like rollicking, crazy, giant Lord of the Rings style battle to play off against this, it would feel like frenetic and still and tense and like you'd be bouncing back between those emotions. But maybe I'm just not gripped by the other parts of the plot enough to be okay with a, a real cool down once every three minutes when we cut to the Rand sequence. Mm. And you hate Rand, so that doesn't help. Accurate. <laughs> Uh, so if this sequence were all kind of like it's it's well done but misses something, it's maybe not quite there the way we want it to be. Um, I guess then the question is, 
is it worth it for the payoff, right? Because if where we all end up is this scene is fine, it's not great, but it does what it needs to. And then we end up in what I find to be a really interesting place, right? Rand has maybe won, but the conflict is still ongoing. Rand insists that Moraine let people know that he is dead, not alive. And Moraine is unable to channel. All of which are things that are not true in the books. And all of which are things that get me as a book reader going, ooh, I want to see how this changes things in the next season. So, Greg, I guess my question for you is, do you think this conclusion kind of earns all of that, given that it's not our ideal sequence? Um, yes. I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully. I think everything you just listed made me want season two. And what is the goal of the last 10 minutes of a season of television, but to like make <laughs> you want season two really bad. And so I was fine i can see how a lot of those choices maybe not all particularly the moraine one i'm not so sure about but how rand going off on his own is is different from but kind of um parallel to the books in a way that is easy to kind of fudge around um but it really just made me feel like the world was smaller because a lot of what was left out were things that in the last section of that first book made you feel like, oh my gosh, like this is way more bigger and complicated than I ever thought. And this felt much more like, oh, well, everything's been working how we thought. We'll change these things a little bit, um, but uh, it's going to continue on on the same track. Whereas I really felt like the end of the book really pushed things in a much different direction. Again, apologies to listeners who are like, he's just mumbling and vague, but I'm really trying hard not to spoil either way if you're just a reader <laughs> or just a watcher. So, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I remember, and, and this was something, you know, again, a decade ago when Tyler forced me to read these books before I could marry Ooh. him. Um, no, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, he, he was really harping on, like, you know, this is a series that takes a while to get going, you know, bear with those first few books, right? I mean, you, you really kind of undersold it. I was like, God, I'm going to hate these, but, and, and they're not that bad. Um, <laughs> they're actually great. But, but to Greg's point, like, I think what's really cool is you get through that first book and it, it feels very like Lord of the Rings again, kind of follows a lot of like Tolkien kind of tropiness, but, but the end of the book, it does, it sets up to this much bigger world and you're like, Oh, okay. There's a lot more to this story and to this world and to these characters. I'm excited. And it did feel like, Again, you know, TV's TV, right? I, I do feel like they had to boil a lot of that down and kind of condense it and almost like package it up a little bit at the end. And then they kind of found themselves again from a storytelling standpoint being like, but we need to hook people back in, right? Or, or you know, there are many shows yeah. where I'm like, that was a really great one season and I'm fine with it ending there and I don't need to watch more, right? And I feel yeah. like had they not introduced some of those new twists that weren't in the books, I feel like maybe people could have walked away, Right. And yeah. so I think maybe this was their way of trying to do that. Now, I know that some of these choices in particular at the ends um, are ones that some of the like hardcore book fans out there were like not happy about. So it may have had that effect on, on book loyalists. So it'll be, I don't know. I'm really curious to see how that kind of um, what that viewership looks like going forward, to be honest. But I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited. Even though the Moraine, I think the one change that I was the least on board with was, was Moraine's. Um, being cut off from her channeling, but I'm open to it. Like, let's see, let's see what they do with it. So 
I actually have a theory about the uh, Moraine uh, change, which is, mm. Greg, I think your your instinct is right. Let's not spoil anything from the next book. But I don't think it's a spoiler to say that Moraine is not in the next book a ton. And so I think if you have a character who is the main character of the television show, who doesn't have a predetermined plot in the next season of TV, like it's going to be really hard to justify why she doesn't go to where one of the kids is and solve their plot for them. And so I think this is almost like really effective armor. It's let's give Moraine something to do and a reason why she can't ruin all of the other plots that Robert Jordan made difficult enough for the kids, but definitely not too difficult for Moraine to solve. That's, that's my suspicion, but I agree. It's kind of a clunky way to get it done. And if you're lead actress is also a producer and on all the published materials, yeah. you know, the posters and the promotional materials. It feels like you want to give her a little something meatier than she got in the second book in terms of a plot to go on. So um, that, yeah. that all makes sense to me. And that, I, I hope that doesn't come off as a slight on uh, Rosamund Pike. Cause you know, get yours while you can. Mm -hmm. And I think she, she uh, did a lot of good work in this show uh, in front of the camera and behind it. So to see her um, want something a little more substantive for that character, it'll be interesting. I mean, and I also just don't want to lose sight of the fact she also got banished from the tower. Um, and yes. I I'm, I may or may not have watched a, and now a special sneak peek of season <laughs> two. Um, and it looks like there's going to be a lot of interesting Marine stuff from the little flashes they give you, is my suspicion. Well, and yeah, the two, I oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I look forward to, to maybe having a little bit more of her involvement because Moraine is my favorite character in that series. Um, I've always really liked her in the books. And, you know, I'm I'm definitely, I would love, like, whether it's flashbacks or whatever that is, um, getting some more of her. Because, again, like, and this was, I remember, like, hearing this, you know, when the Wheel of Time show was even going to be made, you know, talking to Tyler about, like, especially some of those later books, like, there are books where there are characters who just, main characters who just aren't there. <laughs> it was like, how how are you going to do that with a TV show, right? And so that was always going to be the challenge with the show. And so I agree, like, one of, literally kind of like the poster woman in many ways for the show um, to not be present an entire season, just, it, I don't think you could do it, right? And so, um, yeah, I guess that, that that totally makes sense, right? So I can give them some leeway on trying to build more of a story for her. And because I do like that character and I, you know, and Rosamund Pike is doing an amazing job of representing her, I think, um, you know, I, I do actually look forward to kind of seeing what happens there. Well, we are now well over an hour on this podcast. And so I'm going to insist that you all be quiet so we can finish. <laughs> Tyler last... does go to bed at 830. That is yeah, correct. Now's the time. <laughs> uh, any last thoughts about either of these episodes before Greg takes us out of it? Because I don't feel like doing the outro today. I don't think so. <laughs> Uh, then I will just say, you know, uh, pretty good episode of television. Um, I'm curious to see where it builds from here. Um, I, I am a layman at the streaming game, but it does feel like the heat they wanted on Lord of the Rings might have ended up on Wheel of Time. So I'm excited to see um, how 
uh, Amazon capitalizes on that and builds on that. And we, we maybe see where it was. Uh, I will also note we've joked before that, um, there's not a lot of wheel of time merch out there at the level that like they merchandise game of Thrones over at, uh, Warner brothers. Um, but it is very funny. If you pause an episode, um, there's a link right there to go shop for wheel of time, uh, merchandise, which really made me chuckle that like, okay, so they're at least trying to capitalize this on this a bunch. Um, I think we have very much enjoyed talking about these episodes, um, particularly tonight. Thank you, Steph, for being here and, and clocking more time with that that husband of yours, which I'm sure is a real burden. Um, <laughs> at least you can be in separate rooms as you Zoom each other on this one. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, our plans moving forward, um, you know, if you tuned in just for these uh tv show episodes please know we uh are are still reading along we are um as this episode drops we are about uh approaching the halfway point in book number three maybe closer to a third of yeah. uh book number three uh and we encourage anybody who is curious to to go grab a, a paperback at a library or bookstore and uh you can start from the beginning to follow us along on this adventure uh, the plan moving forward is that Tyler is going to watch season two and then determine based on what is in that season when I am allowed to watch season two. Uh, so I think that means he's changing his Amazon password, but uh, we'll see how that works out. Uh, uh, ever uh, since you made the password to our podcast's email account, Hawkeye sucks. <laughs> I've been waiting to change a password on you. Did you just give your password out to all your yeah, listeners? I I go change that password. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, very good. All right. Uh, well, thank you to Steph. Thank you to Tyler, as always. Thank you to all of you who came with us on this journey. And we will look forward to seeing you next time through the glass columns. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass, and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.